This is Cinepunked. This episode, Fight Club. David Fincher's 1999 film Fight Club, based on the novel by Chuck Palahniuk, was met with a mixed reaction on its original release. Its top-notch cast, including Brad Pitt, Edward Norton, Helena Bonham Carter and Meat Loaf, didn't coax cinemagoers in as producers had hoped, and its mix of meta and trauma and super cool self-awareness left some baffled. But over the subsequent years, the film found a loyal following on home entertainment formats, a medium which allowed fans to replay the film at leisure, exploring the rich trail of breadcrumbs Fincher left to explain the narrative. Blasting onto screens just months after the Columbine Massacre, and a mere two years before the atrocities of 9-11, Fight Club is a stylish, if uncomfortable, watch. It's a testosterone-filled exploration of terror, trauma and toxicity. It's 100% cinematic indulgence. The rules of Fight Club are legendary, so today we're going to do the done thing and break the first two and talk about Fight Club. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. And this is how I met Tyler Durden. Hit me in the ear! Wait, back up. Let me start earlier. No, you can't die from insomnia. What about narcolepsy? I nod off, I wake up in strange places. Soap. I make and I sell soap. Tyler Durden. Hit me in the ear! Well, Jesus, I'm sorry. Oh, that was perfect. Hello? I haven't seen you at any support groups. Found a new one. Really? It's for men only. We were finding out more and more that we were not alone. It was on the tip of everyone's tongue. Tyler and I just gave it a name. Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. You are not your job. You're not how much money you have in the bank. You're not the car you drive. You're not the contents of your wallet. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars. But we won't. Very, very pissed off. your blood some of it yeah (laughs) what is going on here I think you know (laughs) Tyler we trusted Hi, I'm your host, Robert J. E. Simpson, and with me tonight is my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rachel Kelly. Hello. All right, so it's been a while since we've done one of these together, just yeah. you and me. Yeah, it's like the gang's back together. <laughs> <laughs> so all these infiltrators come in and they think, oh, we're going to take over, we're going to take over. It's like, no, no, Rachel is part of the furniture, you know. Yes, this is this is like original recipe, Cinepunked. That's it. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> Fight Club, we're, we're so um, for anyone who is sitting and watching or listening to this, just to put this into context, today as we record this is the 23rd of January 2022. And uh, part of the reason we're doing this one is because one of the stars of the film, Meatloaf, um, has just passed in the last few days. Um, but it's also fair to say that there is a context for this within some of the stuff that we've been doing already. Now, we had actually just talked about Fight Club in a piece Rachel posted uh, on our website last week about the uh, top 10 films with actors turned, rock stars or rock stars turned actors? Stars turned actors or, well, musicians turned actors, yes. Literally less than a week before he passed. Yeah, I mean, we're quite fond of Meatloaf anyway. We have, we've, I mean, this, this is our third Meatloaf conversation we've had inadvertently because we've also done... Um, pick a destiny yeah rocky horror rocky horror yeah so yeah yeah he turns up in some good films yeah i mean i'm 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 quite fond of him as a performer and i think the thing that that occurred to me 
in reading all this and actually after you'd posted that and I didn't have the heart to tell you <laughs> was that we've we've labeled him as a as a musician turned actor but he's an actor turned musician turned actor yes fair enough Which um, I, I completely had forgotten that he started off wanting to do theater and the rock god kind of musical stuff was a was something else just a way of him doing it well i, I mean fair point but what's he best known for originally is as rock god meatloaf bad mm. out of hell so yeah um I'm now I'm trying furiously to think if that's the, the case of any of the other ones there, so I can just go, aha! <laughs> but he says, it, he says it himself. It's like, I mean, for him, the whole rock persona was a persona. It was a character that he played. He treated his music no differently from he did his acting. He he acted the role, mm. um, which is sort of interesting. And it means that, I mean, I, I actually don't know Meatloaf's music particularly well. I think I've heard Bad Out of Hell once in my oh. life. Robert. I know him as an actor. Weirdly, that's how I know him is from his screen appearances. It is not from his music, apart from uh, I Will Do Anything for Love, which I just well, remember I was, being played endlessly as a kid. I was going to say, I'm a, I'm a little bit older than you, but I'm not that much older than you. Surely <laughs> I Will Do Anything for Love was was like the soundtrack of a particular portion of your youth as well. Well, like maybe a summer, but it's one year. You know, it's like what, one th- one song, one track. Um, I mean, Rocky well, that Horror. Was, that was kind of, yeah, that was my introduction to meatloaf was that song, that song? Um, and it's so gloriously operatic and over the top and the the um music video is nuts in the best possible way and i, I mean I, my parents had bad out of hell and bad out of hell too when i was a kid but it wasn't one of the ones that was always listened to mm-hmm. um we were more kind of bonnie tyler dire straits in the car on the on, on holidays <laughs> kind of people which you know great stuff my musical education was top notch believe me but um once I kind of just and I kind of went looking for from I went, oh this is brilliant I didn't know rock could be like this and it kind of was you know from a formative experience for for a, a, a young innocent teenage girl at that point. It's such, such a strange thing that this is how we've ended up getting into this conversation I mean because obviously there was that and then the other thing, the other reason that we're doing this film at the time that we're doing it is that at the moment we're, we're dealing with, we've got one of those rare things happening for regular listeners of the podcast is that there's a thematic thread being woven right now in terms of altered realities and, and sort of that, that weird space in between um, the awakening conscience and the subconscious and what's real and what's not real, which I mean, that that's I've always thought that's the entirety of fiction film is all about mm. that, really, because it's all an illusion. Uh, and we talked cave, you know, so, you know, the, that the, this fits very nicely within that. So that's why we're doing this film now. It's not just a shameless meatloaf tie in. Um, we have actually got <laughs> structural reasons to do it. Uh, we've editorialized. <laughs> yes. Well, you've editorialized. Don't 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 like um accuse me of, of being in any way organized <laughs> no well I, I mean i was gonna to say to you before we started this one i i very nearly um decided to stay awake all last night in order to do this podcast to see if i could get myself into that state of mind because my sleep's up the left anyway i had three hours sleep the night before um but then i got really, really tired and fell asleep last night and had a uh, big snooze so uh, i am more awake than i would have been otherwise you really should have mentioned because i have two young kids so i rarely sleep ah so we, we, we could I have actually voluntarily insomniac <laughs> um what do you remember about this on its release Ooh, i didn't see this on its release okay. i remember there being a huge big sort of hype around it and i was um in university at the time studying media studies because film studies was not then available um but media studies as an avenue into studying film um and i remember there being a big huge hype about it at the time and i remember um reading about it in the film magazines because this was really pre-internet being massive mm. um and you know <laughs> whenever i was sort of reading thinking about doing this and reading up around it and I went 1999 gosh that's not that long ago but yeah no it is it really is a long time ago that is now 23 years ago and the internet didn't really exist in the same way back then Mm. so I remember the big hack but but I never saw it um until a couple of years later I think it must have been yeah it would have been sort of mid early to mid um 2001 when I saw it um, on, wouldn't even have been DVD at that point. It would have been VHS. Oh my God, I'm so old. Um, but it had just been spoiled. It had literally just been spoiled for me. And this is the other thing. I mean, people talk about you know, the internet as well as this 
sort of big anarchic sort mm. of ruleless place but people are so into um flagging up spoilers on the internet back in the day when it was print media nobody cared like oh this film's two years old now that would be enough for huge spoiler warnings on on the internet mm. still um but you know two years ah Crimea River it's ages you should have seen it by now and they spoiled it for me well we should we should probably pre-spoiler warn anybody else from this point on yes because we care we're <laughs> conscientious so just in case you know I, I, I'm having to do this now in our podcast but just in case you haven't seen Fight Club at this point um, in the next 30 seconds there'll probably be a spoiler so uh, you know go and watch the film and then come back or if you don't mind having any element of it ruined for you watch it and then come back to us um, yeah so, yeah, can, so we, we, can, uh, we can spoiler now then I assume oh yeah no we can we talk quite liberally I don't know why I've just told people to go away twice rather than actually what I should have done which was say like if you have if, if you haven't seen you don't mind being spoiled then you can carry on listening but I've told them to go away watch it and then come back <laughs> press pause go and watch the film it's worth watching and then come back and listen to us be erudite about it um or you can do what i did and go into it spoilered and still actually get a lot out of it because okay we're i can spoiler now yeah, yeah. so i knew that tyler darden was um one and the same person he was like a a, 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 a separate part of the narrator's identity so the brad pitt um, and ed norton characters are the same are the person. one and the same yeah i knew that going in but i didn't believe it we're the same person that's right we are the all singing all dancing crap Tyler, i don't understand this because i was watching it going that can't be right <laughs> there's no way that's right because it doesn't make sense and then at the end is oh okay yeah but also, no, because at one point Brad Pitt's driving a car. Mm-hmm. So, mm, um, and it sort of feels a bit like I think that probably worked better in the book. Mm-hmm. Because in the film, you have to take a, 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 like you you have to you have to find a way to represent something physically on the screen you have to take it yes this is what definitely happened um approach to it because you are physically re- representing it whereas in a book um i could see i mean i haven't read the book but mm. i could absolutely see that that would work because we are not seeing an actual physical representation of what's going on there we are in the perspective of an, of an unreliable narrator so we're it's it's mediated through the narrator's perspective anyways what's what's the difference between something like that though and those sequences where we see him fighting because um yes you know ed norton is frequently in the background of those shots he's not the one that's there they are very clearly two distinct people in that space well i mean for me that's that that is not quite the same thing because there isn't there's a physicality to that but Mm. it works just as well if it is edward norton in there doing the fighting and kind of watching um himself almost like that that projection of the character outside of himself watching it happen Mm. driving a car you physically got to have your hands on the wheel Mm. he's sitting in the other seat Or not in the case of that, but you know, I, I could kind of see how the the conceit works around that. Um, and it, you know, it doesn't not work for me. Don't get me wrong; I don't understand how he manages to shoot himself in the cheek and not actually tear half his face off and die. But you know, maybe it, it's probably whatever caliber of pistol he's using at the time. Um, mm. I mean, in terms of the car, logistically, I mean, I, I guess I've suffered some of the same things and knowing the outcome, watching it this time, I was much more conscious of the fact that they are the same person and trying mm. to work out how they are perceived by other people around them. Yes. Made a lot more sense to me. I mean, the, the um, discussions with Marla made perfect sense. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden you understand. She is just completely confused uh, about what's going on. And her confusion makes sense and her aggression towards the narrator makes sense because he's being an absolute tool mm-hmm. as far as she can tell and yeah but um i also which i didn't get the first time around um the and i wasn't sure if i'd got it because i didn't remember seeing it but the little um sort of single frame insertions of brad mm-hmm. pitt um in the movie before he appears and i was that, 
I'm certain I just saw Brad Pitt. And I went, yeah, I probably did see Brad Pitt because it's exactly the kind of thing that this movie would be doing to me, particularly a movie that's talking about um, mm. Brad Pitt himself inserting images of penises into mm-hmm. children's movies. So it's definitely the sort of thing. So I probably did see that. And it turns out I was right. I did see that. Mm-hmm. You did. Mm. Um, I mean, they're quite... The, sort of the, the flash frame is an interesting kind of concept because it's it's an element that takes you out of the world of the film for a brief second. It's it's the punctum. It's the thing that suddenly draws your attention. It it it, it completely distracts from whatever else because you're watching these sequences and then suddenly there is this object that fleetingly just appears. It's worse than a fly in the gate or a hair in the gate because that that tends to stay, whereas this is like, and it's away. Um, but it's in these spaces that are empty spaces where he suddenly appears. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you do kind of consciously do it. I mean, it's it's wonderful. I was freeze-framing them last night, going back through it, and, and just sort of like looking, and they're so well put together, like you really wouldn't notice there's a, there's a jar. But yes, it's also quite evident, as, as you say, about, you know, he's, he's, he's a character that sticks penises in the middle of kids' movies just for entertainment and shits and giggles, and this is something that apparently has been done for generations of liminal imagery. Um, the only other sort of previous example that I regularly remember seeing was in the, the BBC TV series, The Young Ones. They used to stick flash frames in. Oh, did they? I didn't uh-huh. know that. It was years since I've seen The Young Ones. Um, they put flash frames in and sometimes they put like slightly more than one single frame, but there was these, these like brief little things that just threw you for a second. And it it disorientates, it, 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 it stops you from completely accepting what you see um which is kind of the point mm. that you should be questioning everything that you're watching mm. at all times um mm. but th- 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 there is i suppose there's something else there as well in terms of how what that character's doing and I, I i find myself kind of pondering a lot about who he is about what he's actually about and about who our narrator is and 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 you know about what they represent um I read a piece earlier today that suggested that um, Tyler, as in the Brad Pitt Tyler, not Mm. actual Tyler, which is the Edward Norton character, um, that Tyler is the manifestation of somebody who was alive that had been killed in one of the car accidents that Edward Norton's character is investigating, and he's a representation of guilt and trauma, which I thought was interesting. I find that interesting. I don't know that I find it um convincing mm. because i don't know that i find it uh, uh, he's so detached from from that um he's 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 angry rather than traumatized but the anger is at the world that is just not the world that he was promised Mm. um it's a it's a world that's lacking in so many ways um and it's an ennui rather than than a guilt for me he certainly seems to be um for me he he definitely feels like a representation of i mean it's a mental health crisis is is what Mm. norton's character's going through um nobody seems to i mean even the doctor's like you know I need something. I I can't sleep. I haven't slept. Just you need, you need rest. Just like yes, but I need yeah. something to help me get the damn rest. Damn you! No, go and go and see other people because they have it much worse than you. So shut up, moaning. Which, yeah, which um, is yeah, which is kind of there's a a lot to be said for how that is exactly the the uh, amount of mental health care that is provided in a lot of cases. Yeah, yeah, you're but, fine. Stop complaining. What have you got some- to be depressed about? Somebody else has it worse. I mean, yeah. it, it's 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 a it's a weird thing, and it's what's that in itself a response to? Because you see mm-hmm. that he he needs the emotional outlet of the cry in order to give him the peace to let him sleep. Mm-hmm. And when he's suddenly deprived of that ability, that release, it builds up to the point where we have this this massive crisis, yeah, and and detachment, yeah. Um, I mean, it is it is fascinating, and and sort of going through some of the, like the clues and the visual clips and stuff, where you sort of see like there there are breadcrumbs everywhere that mm-hmm. help you get an insight into what's going on in his head. Um, but it, it it it's it's uncomfortable too, and I'm 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 not a hundred percent certain where it sits in terms of how it feels about mental health. Yeah, no, I I I think this is a really nineties film. Mm-hmm. Um. I think, yeah, close of the 90s, certainly. Um, the 90s is all about that 
what what you know the the ennui um the promises unfulfilled the I mean you know I am generation x you young millennial thing you um (laughs) I am that I was born in the closing years of the qualifications for generation x so I am proudly a member of this generation not one of those millennials um with your avocado toast but (laughs) (laughs) but so I, I I remember kind of being part of this 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 sort of generational angst and I, yeah I'm not you know there's such a, a I'm not saying in any way shape or form this does not also apply to millennials and uh, generation Y and generation Z as well because absolutely you know this is this is a, a sort of a historical moment mm. um but yeah being part of that um and being part of that angst and being part of that questioning and being part of that um so the reframing of authority or part of you know a, a, sort of a, a Apotheosis, I suppose, of that reframing of authority as being completely non-benign and not having best influence, uh, best interests of anybody at mm-hmm. heart, and the challenging, and I mean, child of the X Files, for goodness sake. Um, <laughs> so you know, <laughs> um, it, and it, it's it's about that. You know, this is we were we were told to expect more from life by our baby boomer parents, mm. but actually, the party's over. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember reading, um, gosh, it must be about this, uh, around about that time that Generation X is the first generation in quite some time to be financially worse off than their parents on the whole, mm-hmm. uh, to have not succeeded economically and societally in the same way that their parents did. Um, so there is a lot of that anger bound up in, in films and there, it's just starting to find its expression in the 1990s and it is pre um, 9-11 as well so there's a different it, it's kind of I think it's really hard to overstate just how much of a different world that is mm. um and well, there's, there's, there's a few things in that so I don't want to I don't want to kind of like I don't want to stop you from 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 going through it because it's it's, <laughs> it's it's good stuff but we need to unpick it a little bit for anyone who's who's mm. trying to follow along um, so, I mean, one of the first things is about, you know, the, the, the authorities being not necessarily as benign as, as, uh, we would have them believe. And I mean, this is, this is released literally a couple of months after, yeah. um, the matrix, which we talked about in our last show. Um, and it strikes me that that is also doing something quite similar in terms of saying that the, the grand overlords are not necessarily happy people, that there is manipulation of fact in order to justify their existence and that there is something there i mean edward it's, sorry it's, it's it feels very much sorry to interrupt you but it feels very much as long as um almost like a reassurance mm. the generation that you know yes it's not just you and also it's not your fault mm. there's something non-benign sitting over you that's actually kind of crushing you well it's interesting you mentioned fault considering ed norton's job is as a as an insurance mm. kind of appraiser you know that yeah. he's, he's exploring this- who's at fault this, and this is it. I mean, this is why I, 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 I'm not, I'm not in any way completely on board with what Fight Club is is trying to do. I think because, um, it's it's almost as though it just wants to completely shrug off any sense of personal responsibility for this. I mean, he is a tool of this consumerist capitalist culture, and yes, he's upset by it, and yes, it's it's kind of ripping the soul out of him, but he's a tool of it, and well, he's a tool. <laughs> you know, it, by saying, but you know, it's it's not my fault. It's it's the the society, you know, and the, the society is dehumanizing and it's emasculating. Um, and I'm forced to respond in this way because I have no other options. Mm. Um, which the film is interrogating and it's kind of exploding as well. It literally exploding. But you know, I I don't know. I think you well, can't he, have it both ways. I mean, his position is kind of odd. He he does say at one point to the um, I think he says. It, he says to, to 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 Tyler, you know, I was close to being complete. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever the the flat explodes, it's like you know everything. It's like almost like you know, I, well, I've I've got the house, I've got the living accommodation, I've got all my IKEA furniture, mm-hmm. and yes, it is IKEA furniture specifically. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I love I, that he's ordering it on the phone. By the way, <laughs> Just... I mean, you try and order something from IKEA on the phone, it's impossible. I had it all. Even the glass dishes with tiny bubbles and imperfections, proof that they were crafted by the honest, simple, hard-working indigenous peoples of wherever. I was holding. We used to read pornography. 
Now it was the Horchow collection. Um, yeah. And then he's but told. It's 1999. He doesn't have the internet. Of course. And then he's told in, in response to you know, things you own end up owning you. Yeah. Um, and yet you feel like the, the the thing that's missing from his little life is is the partner which Marla ends up being. Yeah. Um, and yet the, the I mean one of the the fascinating bits about the point where his life suddenly shifts is that he goes from this like pristine perfection where he's very very well i mean he looks after himself he looks after his space he cares and this is where i think that the, the mental health breakdown is very apparent is that suddenly he is living in squalor mm. he is in the dingiest of horriblest flats um fucking someone apparently who isn't very clean there's a comment about that which is, is possibly very judgmental but at the same time it's also probably i get the impression that they're not that clean um <laughs> And I mean, that just grosses me out for other reasons. But he, he's living and it's, you know, there's a basement that's that's covered in about two feet of water. The the, f- the, the walls are peeling. It, it's, it is decrepit. It's a shithole. But that sort of reminds me of the way that sometimes when you're in a crisis with a mental health issue that suddenly all that becomes too much and you let it go to shit. And you see it then manifest in him because he stops looking after himself. He goes into work. He's increasingly bloodied and scarred and mm. damaged. And there is something wrong. And the relationship he then has with his boss is bizarre. Yeah. Because any other boss would have stopped him before now, would have sacked him if he's not doing his job, if he's constantly in late. It's like there's, there's some sort of, I don't know if it's compassion. Um, but then this is also what I thought maybe just about fed into this other idea that there's something about somebody that the company had inadvertently killed that he had overlooked, that he was witness to, that's the manifestation of the guilt, is that in some way the boss is aware of this and this is some reason why he's not been pulled over the, the coals about it. I don't know. Um, I mean, it, it's a film. It's open to interpretation. Mm. Thankfully, uh, films are. <laughs> but it is, it is a weird, weird situation that ends up leading to this horrific fight. Are you threatening me? No. Get the fuck out of here. You're fired. I have a better solution. You keep me on the payroll as an outside consultant. And in exchange for my salary, my job will be never to tell people these things that I know. I don't even have to come into the office. I can do this job from home. Who, who the fuck do you think you are, you crazy little shit? Security? I am Jack's smirking revenge. What the hell are you doing? Oh. Oh. It's 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 it is it because it's not the film's not wrong and Tyler Durden's not wrong in that the things you own end up owning you. Mm. Um and that is what and what we as a generation have been you know that's that's kind of the received wisdom is that success is measured in what you own mm-hmm. and how big it is and how expensive it is and that then becomes it sort of self-feeding because you know you that you then are tied into this kind of hamster wheel of I must I must continue to be successful so therefore I must continue to to be in you know in the biggest house with the best things um, and there's absolutely nothing innate about that it's just become so intrinsic to the way we understand ourselves um in the developed world that you know it's it's become kind of an article of faith um and i don't know i mean you know this film was was sort of hailed as kind of late capitalism late stage capitalism deconstruction Mm. um we are still in late stage capitalism. It seems to be getting later and later and later. Um, and at some point we are going to have to fundamentally unpack that relationship that we have with stuff mm. because it's completely unsustainable for all kinds of reasons. Like the, not least, you know, that the planet um, can't sustain it, but also the fact that 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 it is a it's a completely abusive relationship with stuff because the more we are owned by stuff, the more susceptible and more vulnerable we are to being owned 
by whoever's in charge of of making sure that we have access to stuff. Well, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's commented on the line. It says it's only after we've lost everything that we're free to do anything. Yeah. Um. So there is this awareness that are are tying down to material, and I realize that as a collector. <laughs> those yeah. are words I don't want to hear, and they no. sit really awkwardly with me. It's like I would, I don't want to lose any of my books. <laughs> and, but then that's also a social thing because I mean, like, not to use our discussions necessarily as a therapy, but I always think a personal element sort of helps in our understanding of the film because we 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 find stuff that we engage with and we respond to. It. But I know for me, um, in terms of class, like coming from a working class background where we didn't have much mm. to have stuff, yeah actually felt like you had progressed in some way and that's a hard mindset to shift and i get the impression that that is also in there amongst some of these characters that that um or at least for him not for the people involved in project mayhem who Mm -hmm. seem to abandon everything by the 300 dollars for your funeral yeah i i I mean again but this this whole uh, this is another reason why it doesn't completely ring true for me because it is the interrogation is coming from a place of serious privilege mm. as well, because not everybody can, not everybody's going to be okay if they jack it all in, like explode their apartment and go and live and, you know, and, and, and then blackmail their boss into financing their, their sort of domestic terrorism. Um, not most people are not going to be okay. And I think that I did, I read one, I did, well, I read a, a couple of, things were kind of saying you know this this is really it's a centered around white heterosexual male mm. privilege um effectively because there's there's he he's it's it's okay because the insurance company is going to pick up um the tab for his exploded apartment until it turns out that he did it himself mm. but um ultimately you know what is the what what is the fallout for the narrator in the book, apparently he ends up um, incarcerated yeah, in a secure yeah. psychiatric facility, which is entirely appropriate because the man has suffered a complete psychotic break. Yes. Um, which has led to him causing millions and millions of pounds worth of destruction. And the fact that um, nobody was killed. I mean, come on. I think oh, that's somebody a, was killed. There's bound to have been def- some- There's no way. I mean, when the World Trade Centers came, uh, Center came down, People died just by being on the street. You know, you well, can't I mean, explode seven skyscrapers and say, no, nobody died because we made sure the buildings were empty. And it's, and it's insurance companies and stuff anyway. So like, it doesn't actually matter. Yeah. It's banks and insurers who are insured. So there's no real risk. But I, I mean, in, in it, I mean, that in itself is, is kind of curious because this film would not have been made or at least it wouldn't have ended as it does two years later. Yeah. You just Absolutely. couldn't have done it. I mean, when Spider-Man can't fly between the Twitter towers anymore because of the, the risks, mm-hmm. um, th- there's no way you could have had those sorts of explosions. No. Um, no. And for um, it to come inside, it's an act of domestic terrorism, mm-hmm. ultimately, mm-hmm. Uh, which, I mean, for the conspiracy mongers among you is always one of the things that people do say about 9-11 is it was an act of domestic terrorism covered up yeah. and, and exploited. I'm not subscribing to that belief, but you, you know, you read and think what you're going to think. Um, but it, it, I mean, I, I didn't see this on its first release. I think I picked it up on DVD, borrowed off a friend uh, several years later. And I remember being shocked when I saw that ending. Like, just couldn't believe that they'd done a film when they had locked it those Did you see it post, post 9-11? See, I saw it pre when I say 2001, I know it was pre 9-11 because I know where I was living at the time and that was pre 9-11. Well, it was it was definitely after 9-11 I saw it and I was shocked that something so recent was able to do that. Mm. And the taboo nature at that point, because there was a lot of films in Hollywood that were being changed in terms of what they were going to do because of the impact of that. And it is uncomfortable. And it's uncomfortable when you think about it. I mean, we're, we're so far away from it now that I think most people watch this and not, not bat an eyelid. Um, but it resonates. And then, I mean, like I said, this in the introduction, it's that, that proximity to Columbine and to 9-11 just makes you kind of rethink what was going on at that time, not just in terms of the film, but in terms of the psyche of people. Yeah, there's there's like a paradigm shift going on, it feels like, or or it's, it's kind of a pre-paradigm shift. Mm. There's like a critical mass building up, almost. But then it just 
it, it gets not erased but refocused mm-hmm. a couple of years later I mean, you know, you not to bring it back to the Toga movie at all, because, which I would never do, as you know. <laughs> you didn't think I could bring quite close. I, I mean, I wondered. Movies, I wondered how you were going to do this, but go ahead. Here's how. <laughs> because Gladiator is from 2000. Mm-hmm. And it represents um, a reconnection with the Toga movies of that were last kind of seen, de- you know, dead in the water in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And it represents a continuation of that quite optimistic theme that that sort of that ceased to be culturally relevant in the mid 1960s because it was sort of new hollywood emerging and but gladiator represents a direct continuity link with that um 9-11 happens and all of a sudden the movies that are getting made are um are 300 and troy um and they're all about we didn't want the war they brought the war to us and the locus of the toga movie shifts so that goes further east and it becomes being attacked by the east mm-hmm. um and and there is a paradigm shift and i think if you didn't it wasn't noticeable when we were living through it but i think if you haven't actually sort of lived through it it can be really difficult to to kind of to, to come to grips with just how different the world was hmm. before that event um and how different what you could show um and what you could interrogate filmically was not what you could because it sounds as though there was some kind of overt prohibition on it when mm. it certainly wasn't but you know I, I remember Cloverfield it had to be done the first kind of inkling of, of dealing with the trauma of of um, the, the the plane city in the World Trade Center had to be done um, allegorically mm. before they could ever address it directly um, Cloverfield's very very on the nose but it's a great film and if you read it as an allegory it's just well yeah how can you not read it as an allegory for goodness sake I mean it's 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 very it's almost literally on the screen but um, yeah Scott that there you go that and that's how I related Fight Club to Toga movies I, I mean, one of these weeks we'll find a we'll find a film that Ruto can't bring <laughs> Toga movies into. No, never going to happen. <laughs> I, I mean, on that, I mean, it, it's one of those interesting films in that it's one of those one of the few examples I think we have where a film definitely seems to have influenced some real life activities, where there were instances of um, students going off and planting bombs and stuff, uh, actual fight clubs actual being fight set clubs, up. Yeah. Um, whereas one of the things, and we, we've we've yet to ever really have a proper discussion about this in the show. It's about the day we do Clockwork Orange is the day we'll actually discuss this properly. You will in, make me do Kubrick of, at some point, won't you? Yeah, but it, but but I mean, it's, it's it's a debate that keeps on coming up about how films influence behaviour. And again, when you look at the timing of this, mm-hmm. and you think post nine eleven, this would not happen because of the perception and that it influenced people already. You know, it's just like big warning signs are written mm. all over it. For... I mean, influence, I think, is is a is a really strong word. Um, it was used as an excuse as to an justify behaviour. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, it's going to sound like a ridiculous hill to die on here because, you know, there's fight clubs emerging mm. in response to a movie about fight clubs. But I think one of the things that the film is trying to interrogate is the reason why um, they emerge that after the film yeah. because it is looking to kind of isolate that alienation and that sense of being lost that is is kind of it's it's consuming a generation at that mm. point so when the film goes no no this is how you this is how you get around it uh, and i mean i for the record i think that the films it, it's packaged it very very neatly and very stylishly and and very cinematically and i think it's kind of bullshit um but then i wasn't the target audience for that film um as as a generation as a female generation expert i can't imagine why punching people in the face was supposed to help but apparently that resonated and so i influence suggests that there's some kind of causal link whereas i think it's it's a bit more tenuous i think it's more like um the the will to find some way to to reconnect with Mm. with that sense of lostness um pre-existed the film and the film just went this is a way of doing it and they went oh okay let's give it a go see it's a debate or not to, to talk about this element of my personal life within this discussion because this film is a 
It's not this triggering, but it reminds me of some some stuff that happened with me. And I mean, I went through a, a really rotten um, mental health crisis of my own at one point, and pain and alienation and lostness was all very very caught up in it. Um, and I was on antidepressants at the time, and it's the reason I won't go on antidepressants again was because of the way that it detached me from myself. I, I've I've talked about this. I may have talked to you about this before. Um, I've certain I'm on other things talking about. It, so this, this is not new news to anyone who's out there listening. Um, but it put me in a situation that was quite like him in terms of I had almost out of body experiences where I started self harming, mm. and I was doing that, and it was literally like I was watching somebody else beat me, and I wasn't getting hurt, and I was looking for that pain to understand the stuff that was going on in my head and feeling more and more frustrated because I was didn't have people to connect with and in a way there was a physicality I mean it, it's it's a touch of a of something mm. that that was missing I mean this is me trying to make sense of, of what was one of the bleakest periods in my life um but it, it, you know, there, there was points where I was, I, I literally was beating myself. Not quite like he beats himself up, mm-hmm. but there was enough similarity for me to go. This actually is something that can happen. That this is, this is a real life crisis. That, that this is uncomfortable, and that it's not that. I don't. I mean, I imagine there are people who watch this and go, "This is bullshit, unbelievable." Whereas I sit there and I go, "This is scarily believable," and that frightens me that people can get to that point because his crisis is so so bad and he has no control over it well he doesn't even realize he's in crisis well i think he does though because he's asking the doctor for help with he says he needs something no you can't die from insomnia what about narcolepsy i nod off i wake up in strange places i have no idea how i got there you need to lighten up can you please just give me something Red and blue, two and alls, lipstick, red, second alls. No. You need healthy, natural sleep. Chew some valerian root and get more exercise. Hey, come on. I'm in pain. You know, he's he's caught up with that. He he is looking for help. He knows that he needs sleep and he needs an outlet and he needs to feel because it is it is killing him. I mean he addresses that early on. And but the only way that he's able to actually access that help mm-hmm. is by adopting a series of personas. He's not able to access that help on his own terms. I mean, he becomes Cornelius. He becomes um, all of the different names of the men that that um, go to the self help meetings. Mm-hmm. He can't. He he can't go and access help and say, "I am in a quandary. I am in crisis. I don't." understand what's happening to me Mm. as himself um he has to go and adopt a a form of pain that feels legitimate to him he has to go and and sort of almost put on a cloak of you know cancer survivor or um somebody living with terminal illness um in order to be allowed to cry seemingly the one self-help group that's advertised he doesn't go to is the schizophrenic group mm-hmm. um, which is probably the one group he should yeah. be in yeah um it, well no 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 that's not fair because he's not he's, he's got diso- dissociative identity disorder not necessarily <laughs> schizophrenia fair enough. um the two are often conflated but not the same thing <laughs> fair enough i stand corrected um he's an actor what i mean the narrator yeah, well, that, that, I mean, if if we take it logically, um, he is an actor putting on a show for all these people. He's putting on a show. I mean, whenever he is beating himself up, that is a show. When mm. he does it in front of his boss, that is a performance. Mm. And he's performing for the person who's on the other end of the phone and who walks into that room mm. while his boss is sitting there as a bizarre audience member, silently dumbstruck, not actually intervening at all, which I guess if somebody's tossing themselves uh, <laughs> against glass objects is what you, what, you How do you do. intervene in that without I, actually making it? look worse yeah I, I really don't know but i mean so th- there is a point and obviously he he's he's like the showman he's controlling everything through this other identity he is putting on these personas he goes through the motions of pretending he's no balls um which is i mean very 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 clumsy metaphor in some respects that, that you know he's at the testicular, the whole cancer, testicular group. cancer group is a very very clumsy metaphor i mean it's literally um for a film that's, that's talking about emasculation i mean there's a man in that group who literally has 
has been emasculated to the extent that he has no testicles and he's grown breasts. I was a juicer, you know, using steroids, diabinol and Wisterol. Oh, they use that on race horses for Christ's sakes. And now I'm bankrupt. I'm divorced. And my two grown kids won't even return my phone calls. And is 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 quite tender, but provides, but also provides, um, him with the moment that he needs, where he leaves this sort of like Turin stride like stain of his head on yeah. on, on on meat's bosom. Go ahead, Gwenez. You can cry. And then something happened. So, um, I mean, what what does that say, though? That you know, for a film that's that's ostensibly about critiquing mm. um, the feminization of culture to the extent that masculinity has become lost in itself, that the only place that he is able to actually connect cathartically with the alienation is in a group that has been not symbolically emasculated, but actually physically emasculated. Mm. So what does that say? Oh. And, and, and I want to throw, what about Marla? What's the film trying to say about Marla? Well, it, it, I mean, it doesn't have an awful lot to say about women, let's be honest. No. There are very few in it. There is the woman who leads the cancer group, who who sort of is a, you know, doesn't say an awful lot and, and sort of does the, the, the sort of the therapy thing with the room and the the penguin the, the cave, which is which I actually think is quite good. But you know, um, it's, as an act, I think that that that's that's a nice and method it, to deal with your stuff. And but, it works for the narrator as well. Again, and you know that feminine space works for the narrator. And there's Sorry. and there's Chloe, who's the cancer victim who's mm-hmm. desperate for a last shag, mm-hmm. <laughs> which you know feeling bestial test massively at this point. Um, and then you've got Marla, who is weird. As she says, you know, she's every right to be in the manuscript because she has no balls um, mm. for the testicular cancer. She's she's so she's positioning herself as somebody who is not entirely female. You're a faker. You're not dying. Sorry. In the Tibetan philosophy, Sylvia Plath sense of the word. I know we're all we're all dying, right? But you're not dying the way Chloe back there's dying. So. So you're a tourist, okay? I've seen you. I saw you, saw you at melanoma, saw you at tuberculosis, I saw you at testicular cancer. I saw you practicing this. Practicing what? Telling me off. Is it going as well as you hoped? Rupert? I'll expose you. Go ahead, I'll expose you. Well, it's really, I mean, she walks on with all the iconography of the femme fatale. Mm. Um, and she inserts herself into the masculine space mm-hmm. as a femme fatale does. And she is kind of sexually, I want to say rapacious, that's the wrong word, but she's uh, freely sexually available mm-hmm. as, as per the femme fatale. Um, he's quite scathing. He calls her a tourist. Yeah. And well, he, de- he denies her right to have any sort of emotional connection yeah. with any of those things, whilst he is also a tourist. Exactly. But equally, the film's making a judgment call about her right to be there as well, because she's mm. not even attempting, he's t- attempting to blend in and look as though he has, he, he has the right to be there, look as though he's not um, different from the people that he's in the group with. Um, but a woman going to support group four survivors of testicular cancer is very much throwing it into in their face. You know, I don't belong here. I'm just here for the free coffee. Mm. Um, and she sits and smokes in, in a, a cancer group meeting and and she smokes. What's the one? Is there is there an emphysema one or something? There's a lung, a congestive lung disease group it's not, or something. It's, it's TB or something. I can't remember. But yeah, so... The film is positioning her as 
in some way not having the right to be there, whereas the narrator, um, although he realizes that he's being transgressive because mm. there is this emotional need that he has to find a way to fulfill because it's otherwise it is kind of killing him. Um, it's, well, uh, it's okay uh, for him to kind of piggyback on other people's pain. I, I mean, with, with, with her, she seems like, I mean, she's an, in, she's comes across or she's presented like an interloper that she's no right to be there. But I kind of wonder if, if, if her positioning is also to question the validity of those male, ex, of exclusively male spaces and the possible toxicity within them. Because I mean, I, I think about um, some of those men's groups that have existed over the last couple of decades who like to go on. Uh, what's that 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 father's group that, that are always kind of putting protests and stuff on, setting Batman oh, up, up yes. buildings and stuff? Yeah. I mean, those groups are not necessarily looked upon. Fathers for Justice, is that it? Fathers for Justice, yeah. I mean, I don't have a particular uh, opinion on those groups, but there are certainly commentary that suggests that these are not necessarily healthy spaces, even though ostensibly they are meant to be healthy spaces. Uh, I mean... Fight Club's not a healthy space. No, it's not. In and it's, it, it, But is that the problem? Because it's an exclusively male space, is that mm. part of the problem? Because whenever he starts off his process, I don't know, because there's also something quite tender about the relationship between him and Bob. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, mean, I, I mean, Bob sort of exists as this sort of... He's a, almost a trans character. He's no mm. balls, he's got breasts. Mm-hmm. Um, he's certainly the most liminal woman- character. Um, yeah, he's the most womanly of the men that we see within the film. He is he's comforting. He embraces. He's presented us with a high pitched voice. I mean, his his masculinity is definitely um, subdued, but there's a there's, there's a warmth and a tenderness. And he's the one character that uh, that the Ed Norton's character actually seems to engage with and care about. Yeah, when he's killed, there is real emotion. Yeah, it's like, and it's not. I mean, it's a very Monty Python Life of Brian moment where they're like, you know, he had his name, his name mm-hmm. was, and they're all like, then they start chanting the name. It, I mean, it's it's like, you know, okay, lead yeah. me Messiah. It's 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 like the death of 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 Robert Paulson is kind of the the wake up point for the narrator mm. to actually begin to get to grips with the psychotic break that he's experiencing. That, I mean, and that is a moment of trauma. Mm. I mean, so trauma is key to the kind of to the alertness. I'm just not quite sure what puts him into the space to begin with. Mm. I've sort of sidetracked a little bit from from the point about the, the, the about Marla's purpose because I'm not entirely sure. I don't mm. know. I don't know what it is that we're really meant to think about her. Um, She's up, but she ends up being almost redemptive, which the femme fatale never is. Yeah, and I think he cares about her. I mean, I think yeah. by the end of it, he realizes he does care. Yeah, well, uh, certainly, it, yeah. The, the and as the narrator, he always did. I think, even though she is manipulative, mm. um, and she's manipulative as well. I mean, you know, as, she's toxic yeah. as well as as well as the rest of them. I mean, mm. um, but ultimately, he, he harms her. I think more than than her toxicity mm. harms him. Hmm. Like, considerably more. You fuck me, then snub me. You love me, you hate me. You show me a sensitive side, then you turn into a total asshole. Is that a pretty accurate description of our relationship, Tyler? She says, you're the worst thing that ever happened to me. And that's not wrong. Had he not vanquished the Tyler side of his personality before she was um, dragged up to the top of that skyscraper, Mm. she was going to die. Yeah. Yeah. Because of him. It's not, it's not, a, I mean, I, I don't feel in any way positive about the actions and behavior of any of the men in this film yeah. at all. Yeah. I, I mean, there's just nothing good about them. There's nothing redemptive. I mean, there's nothing redemptive about it because ultimately he stands there and watches everything collapse around mm-hmm. him. The only redemption is he hasn't killed her. It's like, well done, you're you're a fucking man who's been really toxic to another woman and managed not to kill her today. Yeah. I mean, and. And, and that's kind of the qualifier, isn't it? He didn't kill her today. today. <laughs> yeah, we we are going to have. I know we're going to have to wrap this up pretty shortly. So there's a couple of things I want to very quickly kind of like touch on. Um, the first one we've sort of briefly commented on already with the flash frames. The, 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 I, what does this film say about film? I mean, it's it feels like a very meta experience, but 
particularly because, as, as I said, he's a showman. There's that point where they break the fourth wall about halfway through mm. and they actually show us how a film's constructed and they make us very aware about the flash frames and they make us very aware about um, the impact that they have potentially in small children and also the cigarette burns and the real changes. And there's a break in the fourth wall. He literally talks yeah. to us. Yeah. Is that, is that saying something? Is, is, is that just being clever for the sake of being clever, do you think? Uh, that's a really, really good question. Um, and uh, if if I were being ungenerous, which yes, you know I would never be, <laughs> um, I do. I mean, this is a very constructed film. Mm. It's a very stylish film. Um, it's it's a very, very David Fincher in the nineteen nineties film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the reasons I could never properly connect with Seven. You know, that it's his previous film to Fight Club was because it was invested so heavily in reminding you that you were watching a film. Mm. Um, and and a lot of the sort of cinematic artifice was, and I find that really irritating. Mm-hmm. Um, I like a stylishly shot film, and I actually think, I mean, for all that the film is, you know, that the style of the film is is degraded and grubby and nasty. Mm-hmm. Um it's beautiful in that respect i mean yeah. it is in every frame as a picture it's just a really nasty grubby picture that you <laughs> want to wash your hands afterwards but it's it's beautifully constructed but i i mean is it any i mean you know this i know this has been called retro noir rather than neo-noir and i'm not sure mm-hmm. i completely um agree with that either um but but you know the whole the whole kind of artifice, the whole rule, sort of reminding you the the fatalistic. Um, this is how we ended up here. Kind of um, structure of the storytelling. Mm-hmm. It's it's very classic film mm-hmm. noir, which you know, apart from the breaking of the fourth wall, which I don't know. I mean, that just feels like that that kind of aren't we so very clever and and media articulate. Um, I mean, I suppose for me, it's it's the point at which, certainly on a second viewing, where you kind of go, you, you realize at that point what he's doing is he's letting you know that everything that you've seen has been a lie, yeah, and that you should have been paying attention and hear the clues. So second time around, you watch it and you see exactly those things, and you understand a little bit sooner. But it's like I, I kind of feel that when you watch it the first time. You, and, and I mean, if you forget about the stuff you've been told, you sort of just watch through and you forget that actually this is, he's making it clear. He's also, I think, being self-aware in that moment about himself and his own behavior. That, because, yeah, the whole thing is perception. Mm. Um, well, and the whole, the, the, cons- the reality is perception. Reality is artifice. Reality is mediated. Well, that's the thing I want to kind of like close up on with this conversation about this is, is about the reality and, 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 and the sleep, the importance of sleep. <laughs> yes. um, what? Feel, the importance of what? I mean, so I, I feel that we can't talk about Fight Club without talking about that, what that has done, what that actually means about and about film and what that that is. I think that's a very filmic thing to be concerned about, about that, that, that needs to be alert and aware um, mm-hmm. you know, there's something in my head uh, about uh, REM sleep and about retention of memory. I mean, that that's that's part of it as well. I mean, frame film is 24 frames a second traditionally. Um, so it's the constant flickering of images that in itself is quite hypnotic that entrances that sucks us in. Um, so nothing we see is ever actually moving. Nothing we see is ever quite real. Um, but I've also fallen asleep in films and woken up very disoriented, mm-hmm. um, wondering what the hell has just gone on. I, mean, I think I may have seen Fight Club at some point like that as well. <laughs> just sort of that would be that would be disorienting, yes. <laughs> yeah, just just not not quite sure. Even a film that you love, you're sort of like drifting in and out of consciousness. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a strange, strange thing. And I mean, obviously, yeah, anyone who's had children or looked after children for any period of time is very aware that sleep is something that is that is a, a luxury. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Lose an hour, gain an hour. Check in for that flight doesn't begin for another two hours, sir. This is your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. You wake up at Air Harbor International. If you wake up at a different time, in a different place, could you wake up as a different person? 
Do you find yourself questioning your reality? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, yes, you get into that kind of fugue state where you're just you're looking around and you you almost hold your hand up in front of your face. You're like, what is this? What's going on here? Um, going in and the sort of the fuzzy detachment and the, the sort of sense of standing outside of your body, um, which I suppose, yes, would have something in common with if you wanted to stretch that analogy would have something in common with the experience of watching film standing mm. outside of something watching reality um and and uh that's the whole point of film is to disrupt the sense of watching um and it's to disrupt the the knowledge of of watching mm-hmm. um and and to disrupt the memory of watching um so that strikes me that is exactly what he is then our narrator is essentially uh somebody who's sitting in a cinema watching their own life playing out on screen in front of them mm. is it that point that 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 line he makes about it's only when you're kind of like facing death that people actually stop and listen that he is telling this story from the moment where he's staring death in the face and he's listening back to his own life and it's almost like that flashback where you play everything out but there's a sense of detachment and another reality and an inability to blame oneself for one's own actions until the point where he actually accepts you know what i am responsible for this shit and i should probably not do it um but i kind of want it anyway let's blow it up <laughs> i don't know there's there's, there's something there mm, okay no not a hundred percent convinced but i'm not not convinced i'll take that's a win for me (laughs) (laughs) with you that's a win (laughs) um look i mean i I don't want to drag this out because i i I want this to be quite a fairly kind of basic conversation on on fight club because people know this film and i i feel that lots of writing exists out there about it i think it's probably beloved by film students the world over because it is a, a meta film um it is a very male film it is. I think that's a disadvantage with it in many respects, and it's it's quite disappointing watching it back and seeing. For me, as I, for me as a man, it's quite disappointing to watch it back and see just how 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 masculine it is and how I don't even want to say it's masculine because I don't know if it is masculine, but it's very toxic masculinity that's represented. I think. Um, yes. But purposefully, it's it's addressing it's addressing a point that remains relevant. Is it being critical or supportive of it, though? I think it, ultimately critical, because the support system that in, it envisages, um, you know, to allow men to connect with this supposedly lost hunter-gatherer impulse and to let them feel connected to and part of. I mean, uh, was it was it Palinik himself said, you know, in talking about the film, you know, society is 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 built now, all's left is for it to run. Mm. Um, and that complete disconnect from any kind of useful endeavor. Um, but the mechanism it envisages um, for connecting back into that, you know, this this kind of physical violence to reconnect the hunter-gatherer impulse very, very quickly devolves into fascism. Mm. And so there's there's no possible way to look at that and to look, there's no way to look at that and to, to walk away with the idea that anyone involved thought ultimately that this was a good thing. Mm. Not if you're paying attention, but I think there's enough in there. There's enough critique of society. There's enough questioning. There's enough. I, I don't agree with the conclusion it draws, but but it's not for me because it's not my experience. Um, there, there, there's enough in there that says something is badly wrong here. I don't think it has the answers. I think it would like you to think that it has more answers than it does. But ultimately, I th- and this is the thing, 23 years on, this is still relevant. You know, men's mental health remains in crisis. Late stage capitalism just gets worse. 
Um, <laughs> and and there is still an absolute dearth of resources for men in crisis. And there's still no really good accepted way for men to say, I'm in crisis. So isn't that depressing that something that belongs to an era that is in a lot of ways back. I mean, there's dial up internet in this film for God's sake. Um, <laughs> but it's still relevant a generation later. Sadly, I have to concede that I, I, I completely agree. It's, it's a horrible space. It strikes me that particularly as we record this it, during a pandemic, um, that that sense of alienation still exists when you look at what's happened within the United States of the last couple of years in terms of politics. Um, when you look at the protests that have been going on globally over the last little while, it feels that like we are still in this space. It feels like it's a very, I mean, that's why I, I, I talked to you about this as a modern film and you're like, it's 23 years 23 old. Years <laughs> old. <laughs> so, yeah. But it feels like a very modern film. I, I mean, it feels as pertinent now as it ever did. Yeah. Um, which is I suppose in its favour. I mean, it's it's not every film you can say that about. Also, Brad um, Pitt hasn't visibly aged since he was <laughs> in that film, so there's also that. <laughs> to be fair, neither has Helena Bonham Carter or no. um, Edward Norton. Edward Norton's Edward pretty looking a bit more like he's 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 seen a few years, but still, you know, he's still Edward Norton. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I think that that probably covers it pretty much for us. Unless you've got any last words. No. no. We're not supposed to talk about Fight Club, but we just have for an hour. We, 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 yeah, we did. Because I, I mean, but that's that, of course, is the the secret to the not talking about Fight Club is it already presents us with a challenge to authority mm-hmm. that in order for Fight Club to expand and build, you have to confront the authority of the what you're being told in Fight Club, mm-hmm. and you have to share the words. Yeah. And I guess that's what we have to do is we have to keep on talking about stuff in order and, and keep on challenging what we've been told in order to kind of progress. Yes. Um, that's a Rachel, great place to leave it on. Isn't it? Thanks very much, Rachel. It's, it's good to have you back. Yeah, it's like old times. <laughs> um, so folks, if you've enjoyed this uh, or you didn't enjoy it, let us know. Uh, contact us on social media. Uh, we're on everything and find us on our website at www.cinepunked.com. Um, if you like the podcast, do like, subscribe, follow, tell your friends and uh, we will see you again very soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Copy of a copy of a copy. Mm-hmm.